Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, good news, folks. Mike Watt has tuned up the VW bus, and we're heading for the always August summer camp for wayward adults, because it's SST 193, the always August geography 12-inch. And it's our third and last always August release, unfortunately, that we'll cover on the show. But to help us out, Brent, we've got a hella swella fella of a special guest. Yeah, Lee West is on the show. Yeah, we're really on a roll here with just the nicest folks of all time to join us on this SST journey. Yep. And the last the last few episodes have been killer, and Lee is no exception. Yeah, super nice guy. All these Always August guys are just killer dudes, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, do you want to hit us with some spiels before we uh, get in the bus? Yeah, for sure. I'm a little light on the spiels this week, Ryan. I am just so deep in planning for our year-end best of show. Like, ah. just pouring over and like obsessing over just getting it right of the dozens and dozens of contenders. So, the top ten. Yeah. So. You're talking about how we are actually going to do our top 10 in of 2021 in 2021 in a couple of episodes from now. Is that right? Yeah, it's making me nervous, man. What if something squeaks in after we do the episode? But that's why we usually do it the following year. You're mixing it up. So, you know, you're making your bed, you're going to sleep in it, I my friend. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. We might have to bat clean up in January. Can do. <laughs> well, here's my question. Okay, so if we're going to do our top 10 of 2021 for, I take it, this would be the land speed record episode. When are we doing our SST roundup? Same for episode. The year? Same We're episode. doing it all in one episode? I think so. Holy man. I don't know. Maybe we'll do the SST one next week. Holy shnikey. We'll okay, have to well. have a Mojack board meeting and figure this shit out, man. We'll have, we'll have to dust off the bylaws. Well, you know what? I My spiel is somewhat in anticipation of the top 10. So you start and I'll back clean up in the spiel zone for this episode. You're not talking about the new carcass record, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no. Are they, they're, they're still putting out music? Yeah, man. Hmm. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm, I know that there's people that likes that stuff. <laughs> All right, Ryan, I have a bit of a podcast shout out and I hope I didn't talk about this already because I tell everybody about this podcast and I'm like, did I talk about this on the show. So a while back you were talking or we were both talking about a podcast or we were talking about Dweezil Zapper or something. And you mentioned just off the cuff that he has a podcast, but you, I don't think you, he does. I don't think you really knew what the details were at the time when you mentioned it, but mm -hmm. it intrigued me. So I had a look and it is just hands down the greatest podcast ever created next Dweezils? to next to ours, of course. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. He's it's, I have not taken a, a deep dive at all, but, uh, and I have not subscribed like to be completely honest, I have not, but, uh, I, I don't know. Is there anything that Dweezil does that isn't high quality? Well, he has a, he has super high standards always. I'm going to tell you what this is about. So you can decide whether this is up your alley or not. Okay. It's called running with the Dweezil. Yeah, yeah. It's an album by album breakdown of each Van Halen album, each with a different famous guitarist. You would love this. Oh, you yeah. You would love it. Yeah, it, it's paywalled. So, uh, but believe me, it's totally worth the price, especially if you're a Van Halen fan, and especially if you're an Eddie Van Halen fan 
or just a guitar player or even a musician. Like, you know, I was quite young, uh, uh, just coming into my teenage years when, you know, Van Halen was at the peak and learning to play guitar. So like, obviously I was a huge Eddie Van Halen fan and an Eddie nut, still am. And uh, so perfect podcast for me. There's a few options. There's the early years, which is like $30 US and that covers the Roth era. And then there's a second package called Right Here, Right Now, which is like 23 bucks, And that covers the Sammy era, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-Sammy for sure. Like I like some of that stuff. Uh, or you can get the 5150 pack, which of course is $51.50. <laughs> and it's everything? Yeah. I'm currently yeah, yeah. working my way through the Roth era. Uh, the Sammy era has kind of just started. It's season two, so it's like only two episodes deep. But I'm totally going to to buy that one too. I'll probably wait till they're all available. Who has he had on so far? Uh, well, like Steve Vai, for example, does a yeah, two-parter on, on Van Halen 1. Uh, Nuno Betancourt's been on it. Billy Corgan does Fair Warning, and he's actually... Interesting. Yeah, well, he's actually a, you know quite the shredder and was a Billy Corgan. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, of course. Totally. For sure he is. Uh, so it makes sense that he would have been a Van Halen fan. Uh, the best one for my money of season one, kind of the Roth era is Paul Gilbert on Van Halen too. Like sometimes they have a guitar with them and Paul Gilbert does. And like, he's just, you know, knows every single lick that Eddie played. And they talk about all the nuances in Eddie's playing, etc. And, Okay, so who's who's Paul Gilbert, though? Pardon well, me for not knowing. Who is he? Well, he was in some shitty bands like Mr. Big, but, you know, he's a he's just one of those 80s shredders. I thought Nuno Betancourt was Mr. Big. No, that's extreme. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Both shitty oh, bands, yeah. but the guys are, yeah. are both total shredders. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. You know, Paul is talking in the interview, Paul Gil- Gilbert, about how he's kind of progressed from copying Eddie's licks to learning how to play Diamond Dave vocal parts on guitar. And it's just super fun to listen to, (laughs) (laughs) you know, talking about all the nuances in Dave's vocals and, uh, he's talking about being 12 years old and going to see Van Halen at that time, like buying nosebleed tickets and taking binoculars with him so he can see how to play specific parts and, it's just fun listening to these hugely successful and famous guitarists just, you know, totally, they're just like little kids all over again. Yeah, you know, that would be good. It's just a total reminder of the incredible influence that Eddie had on music, period, but especially on guitar players. He was still alive when they started this, so. Uh, um, but he was huge influence on, on the Dweez, for sure. Oh, yeah. Dweezil tells, like, a hilarious story about something to the effect of, Eddie phoned Frank, cold called him, got his number through Steve Vai, cold called him because uh, he was building 5150 and he wanted to come and see Frank's studio. So Frank invites him over and Dweezil's like 12 at the time. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, he opens the front door and Eddie's walking up their path wearing the jumpsuit from the cover of Women and Children First and... <laughs> Carrying his guitar in his hand, no case. Yeah. And like, he tells this story, he was just starting to play guitar and he's playing, he kind of befriends Eddie or, you know, Eddie's coming around the house a little bit and stuff. 
and he's playing Dweezil's play in his high school band. They're playing running with the devil at their high school talent show. And Eddie shows up in his Porsche and like parks it in the alley behind the school. And like <laughs> they're sound checking and Eddie comes in and he's like, your gear sucks, man. Hold on. I'll be right back. And like goes in his Porsche and comes back with like a Van Halen roadie and a bunch of Van Halen backline. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Dweez has mentioned endlessly about how, like, he totally, you know, you would think you're Dweezil Zappa and you're going to learn to play guitar because of your dad and you're going to learn to play guitar like your dad. But no, it was all Eddie Van Halen for the Dweez. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can uh, hear little snippets of it, you know, for free on any normal podcasting site. But yeah, it's worth checking out. I think the Paul Gil Gilbert stuff where he's showing how to play. Dave's vocal lines is one of the free samples you can listen to. Check that out, man. It's really good. <laughs> All right. That's it for me, man. What do you have? Okay. Well, so we already kind of touched on this, how we're going to do our top 10 in a, in a couple episodes here for 2021. So I'm gearing up for this. And what I do is I kind of, you know, I go through my shelves, I go through my my uh, my computer and I kind of look at okay what happened in the last year mm -hmm. but when I'm looking at what happened in the last year what I also realized is that I also rediscovered a bunch of stuff this year so what I wanted to do uh, one last time in 2021 was an edition of my last 10 spiel and this is last 10 oldie but goodies edition okay how about that I better get my pen out Okay, so these are bands that I'm a fan of, but hadn't really dug back into them in a while, and some in a really long while. Uh, but I did this year, and I loved it. It's a bit random, but I mean, if I, you know, there is a bit of a common thread in that, you know, I'm a fan, and uh, I stumbled across them again during the year, and I just dug really into them. So here we go. It's going to be quick. And uh, number one is uh, is probably my oldest band that I was a fan of, but I'll start at number 10 here and work my way to it. So number 10 is an Austin, Texas noise band called John Boy from the early 90s. Records on Trance Syndicate. The The records are Pistol Swing and Claim Dedications. This Claim Dedications record is the noisiest stuff that I was listening to probably in the summer and just loving it. There's a song on Claim Dedications called Chair. John Boy, awesome band. Next, this is getting into a little bit of the new wind sound here. The band is American Standard. Mm -hmm. This is uh, melodic post-hardcore from New Jersey. They're excellent, excellent. For me, classic record Wonderland on Powerhouse Records from 89. I got into it because they sound like a like a more melodic, hardcore kind of doughboy sound. Their lead singer really sounds kind of like John Kastner sometimes to me, and I love it. Um, they also put out another great record later on. They kind of got more slick, I, I suppose, um, through their records. Piss and Vinegar came out in 95, and then the new American Standard Classics in 01, but they're all good, American Standard. And sticking with the New Wind theme, you get where I'm going with the New Wind? Mm -hmm. We could be the New Wind, Brant? Yep. yep. Okay. Uh, Alloy. 
So we talked about Alloy earlier this year. We were talking about Vic Bondi for something, and it might have even been when I was talking about Grave Goods and Colin Sears. But Alloy, of course, is Vic Bondi's band after Negative Approach with Colin and Roger from Dag Nasty. They're two, the two records, Eliminate and the self-titled one, are both excellent post-hardcore, melodic hardcore. Uh, the song on the self-titled record from Engine Records 93, Untied. Love that stuff. I was just digging that alloy record. Now, the next two I've got are a couple of fours. June of 44 and Kerosene 454. So June of 44, this is ex-Rodan, ex-Lungfish, ex-Hoover, Crown Hate Ruin. The list goes on and on. Excellent post-hardcore jazzy math rock. They're, they're kind of held out as a bit of a collective this is a quarter stick records band so you know it's it's going to be good pretty much um great records though engine takes to the water tropics and meridians there's just a ton of great june of 44 records that i was getting into and it's been a long time since i listened to them and then i was on a kerosene 454 tip this is a dc band some of the guys uh, went on to play in bands Channels, Office of Future Plans with Jay Robbins, also Report Suspicious Activity with mm-hmm. Vic Bondi. Um, Kerosene 454, kind of a slow dime records band. Their records that I was into, At Zero, Situation at Hand, really digging back into them. And then I was still on a DC kind of tip, and I got back into this band Regulator Watts, their excellent 97 record, The Aesthetics of No Drag. This is X Hoover and Future Blue Tip, another great kind of Discord slow dime band. I think they were a slow dime uh, Blue Tip, but very similar kind of vibe to Kerosene 454 for me. Great, noisy, post-hardcore, great production, angular, uh, but Regulator Watts has got a bit more of an atmospheric vibe that I was really digging. So uh, there's there's kind of my first... I think that's my first five or six anyways i uh, love blue tip but i don't know regular watts so i'll check them out regulator watts oh regulator okay regulator watts yes another discord slow dime band they're great um joel rl phelps so i mentioned joel when i was talking about silkworm a while back and how i kind of knew joel's stuff but i hadn't really dug into it but i really dug into it here uh in the last couple of months and man i love it um it's kind of rootsy country almost at some times but it still is the great joel uh lyrics and vocals that i fell in love with with silkworm and after he left the band he started playing uh with this combo the downer trio they've got a few albums on one two xu uh, my favorite is Customs from 04. I was also listening a lot to Joel R.L. Phelps and the Downer Trio, the record Gala. Loving those. Sea of Pearls. Ever heard of Sea of Pearls? I don't think so. I got back into them. So the reason I knew about Sea of Pearls was because Orestes, the drummer from Bitch Magnet, played in their second album, Victor, from 1991. But I prefer their first record, Sucker Punch. Um, from 1990. Great, melodic, noisy, grungy indie rock. Just love it. Um, and I don't know much about them, and I don't know how Orestes was playing with them, but they seem like they're a band from Germany, and somehow Orestes uh, from Bitch Magnet started playing with them. But He gets around, oh, man. I guess. Remember when um, he lived in Calgary? 
He did live in Calgary. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. I, I am at some point in my life going to reread that John Fine book. I loved it so much. All right. Second last. Big Wheel. This is Peter Searcy's band after Squirrel Bait. Okay. Uh, three great records. Great, earnest singer-songwriter records. Like, if you liked Split Lip, who turned into Chamberlain, you got to like Big Wheel in my books. Um, and, by, and by the way, you know, Fate's Got a Driver is a classic of all time. For me, the very first Big Wheel record, East End, 1989 on Giant, that's a classic of all time for me too. And uh, got really got back into Big Wheel. Kind of got a bit slick in their second and third records, Holiday Manor and Slowtown. But I don't know. I just like Peter's vocals. And uh, I'm going to be... I'm due for another deep dive back into Squirrel Bait 2, of course. Now, here is my last of the 10, though, and my oldest band that I have been a fan of for a long time, but I kind of rediscovered this year. I had to get the Lead Out brand. It's Led Zeppelin. Oh, nice. So here's the thing about Led Zeppelin and me. I've been a fan forever, but what I did when I was a kid and I took like my paper route money when I was grade seven, grade eight, something like that. I went to the HMV, one of those horrible stores from way back when that charged insane amounts of money for imports, which weren't really imports, that mm -hmm. type of store. Yep. And I bought the, the first Led Zeppelin box set, the one with, you know, the crop circles on it. Yep. So I was like, I like Led Zeppelin. I want to check them out. I want to get into them. I'm going to save up and going to go get the box set. But of course, that is a compilation four-disc set. The tracks, doesn't have all the tracks from all the albums, you know. Not the great, has a couple unreleased tracks, which is cool. Um, great liner book. You know, that that's all good. But And then a couple of years later, I got the second Led Zeppelin box set, which really was like kind of the leftovers. And that's all I've had for my entire life until this year, is those two Led Zeppelin box sets. But I've been hearing for years about the Jimmy Page remasters mm -hmm. from a few years back. Yep. And and I got all those. Yeah, and, they're great. Oh, and I yeah, and I listened to the the nine, I mean if you count Coda, the nine Led Zeppelin studio records, the remasters. And dude. Yeah, they rule. Oh, they still hold up, hey? Like they are just undeniable classics, all those records. And they are headphone records and they always sounded great. And they even sound better now. I just had to uh, spin some Zeppelin. So oh, man. that's my last. That's my last ten. I mean, the the sound on those records still is like the gold standard. Yeah, that, that they it's captured. Amazing. You know. Yeah the um, the natural acoustics, the mm -hmm. natural reverb. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. Hey, uh, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss have a a new album out. I like the the previous one, Raising Sand. I don't. Do you ever listen to any of his solo stuff? I, I don't uh, have any of the, the Plant and Krauss stuff. I had the, what was the one where Robert and Jimmy got together? Was it Unleaded or something like that? Uh, no Quarter maybe is the one. No Quarter. Yep. That's the one. I had No Quarter for a while. I don't know where that went. I lost it. They do have a studio album that they did too called Walking Into or Walking to Clarksdale. I can't remember, but it's it's pretty good. Jimmy and Robert have a studio yep. album? Yep. Man, where have I been? And the, I guess I've, I've the, been stuck on these nine records. The Coverdale Page one's pretty good. Oh, there's, I think I know what that one is. There's good stuff in there, man. And hey, Robert Plant has a podcast too, where he talks about a different song from his career. And there's some Zeppelin Each stuff episode. in there. Yeah. It's called, 
Digging Deep, I think, with Robert Plant. It's good. They do like Achilles' Last Stand is one of the Zeppelin songs they cover. Yeah, I don't know. It was it was really weird. I kind of just realized like I don't know those albums as they were intended to be heard in the order that they were mm-hmm. intended to be heard. And I just said, you know, enough is enough. Yeah, even the songs you've heard a zillion times on like shitty classic rock radio when you're listening to an album front to back are still great to hear oh yeah and if you've got it on i you know a half decent system on mm-hmm. those remasters on vinyl it is it's pretty impressive it's oh, pretty yeah. impressive when you're listening to like when the levy breaks or you know moby dick and it, the drumming and it's just fucking cranked yeah it's, awesome. it's pretty amazing man yeah. uh, i don't know of anything that's come close to that type of vibe so yeah, that is my last last ten of 2021. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's mostly kind of post punk and noise, mm-hmm. and maybe some new wind. But it it ended up with me having to get the lead out. Read on. Yeah, man. Well, man, should we light some incense or yeah, what? Yeah. History lesson part one. All right, so we're back with always August. It's our last one. It's too bad because you know I've mentioned this before, like not. This is this is probably more of a Brant band than a Ryan band, but I gotta tell you, man, this twelve inch, it really connected with me this week. It is it is definitely my favorite, really for sure. Yeah, I and it's I I kind of felt like it was too short. Yeah, like I wish I wish there was more. It was one of those. So I, I don't know. I was feeling primed for it. We've had Always August on twice before, episode SST seventy eight for the Black Pyramid LP with John Kiefer. And also SST-135, the Largeness with Holes LP with Tim Harding. So it's been like, what, 60 episodes almost since yeah. we've had Always August on. It seems like a really long time. It's about time we got back into them, man. It is about time. <laughs> and I was looking, too, through uh, my bookage. And yet again, you know, I'm reminded about how undocumented mm-hmm. Always August are currently. Currently until, you know, some books come out, right? Some new books come out. Um, I did find, though, probably my best or my favorite, you know, succinct description of them in Rock and the Pop Narcotic. Always August are described as psychedelicized improv heads. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. pretty fitting. I was wishing this EP was longer, too, and it sounds like you'll hear in the interview that there was more material recorded during these sessions, Mm -hmm. but they... Yeah, yeah. It's lost to the sands of time. I was listening to the Always August anthology that Tim Harding sent us, hoping that maybe some of the stuff on there, I I couldn't remember, thinking maybe some of the stuff from there was from these spinhead sessions, but no such luck. Yeah, side two of this 12-inch is pretty epic, hey? Yeah, yeah, for sure. wow. Well, I... I'll give you a little history lesson recap here, Ryan, but people really should check out those two episodes with John and, and Tim. And then this one with Lee, it kind of just, you know, it's all, all there. there. Brings yeah. brings it all together with these three uh, episodes for sure. Yeah, the core of the band was John Kiefer, guitar and vocals, Jeff Douglas on drums, Lee West, guitar and vocals, Tim Harding, bass, on, bass and vocals. Uh, they came out of Richmond, Virginia, formed, I believe, in the fall of 84, Lee West and John Kiefer moved into like a punk house together, playing in the band Judge Dread. And soon enough, Tim Harding moves in. And then 14-year-old teen runaway Jeff Douglas kind of ends up on the scene. And Tim and Jeff, so, amazingly, Ryan, didn't even play instruments at this time. 
when the band was first getting started. That's insane because, you know, one of the things that stuck out, like this is for sure Tim's best bass album. Oh, he's a monster, man. Whoa. Yeah. Like he's he's really working it on this 12-inch. Yeah. So like John and Lee are playing a lot of guitar together. I think Lee played bass in Judge Dredd, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he wants to switch to guitar, so they're they're jamming along with Jeff. There's drums set up in the house, and Jeff starts playing them. Tim picks up the bass. Uh, they start taking a lot of psychedelics and jamming kind of around the house, and they, they assume the name Black Pyramid, named after uh, a type of blotter acid that was going around at the time. And in the week of Christmas 84 into New Year's 85, they're jamming like crazy, taking acid, and really getting off on these jams. At some point, they record these sessions, I believe with Kirk Henderson, in their living room to 8-track. And at a gone show in Richmond, they pass along a tape uh, to Greg Ginn. And shortly after that, Ginn calls, calls up the alternatives uh, to ask them to do a record. And uh, he tells them to ask Always August if they want to do one also. I'm pretty sure that's how it went. To borrow a, a famous line, Ryan, don't qu- don't quote me on that. It's my memory. <laughs> who, who, who made that famous? You did? <laughs> my memory's terrible for these things, but that's how I remember it going down. But um, yeah, yeah. the interviews will tell the tale. Uh, at some point, they add Steve Splash Matthews in on congas. Mm-hmm. and uh, various other men's instruments and players kind of from their circle of friends in Richmond on, on each album. On this one, we've got Tom Wall on alto sax. We saw him on Largeness with Holes. Uh, uh, but he's he's the only player, uh, along with Steve, who you know I consider a member of the band as well, uh, that we see on this EP. Yeah. And I mean, I think of all the guys on this record... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, Tim, John, Tom, Steve, Lee. I think the only person we see later on is Tim in Hotel Hotel X. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, man. I think so. Should we kick it over to the interview with Lee? Yeah. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Lee West. Lee, thanks for being on the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Brand. Thanks for uh, for going through all of the SST catalog with uh, with us. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sad to say we're at the end of our our time with with Always August. We're on the Geography EP, but mm-hmm. before we get to that, I want to go back to your own personal journey. Now, are you from Richmond originally? Um, I was a military brat, so I spent a lot of time living in different places, but I was born in Alexandria, Virginia, and I graduated high school there. So that's kind of the, that bookended my, you know, my early years, but I spent a lot of time out in the Midwest in Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, when I was growing up. Now, what about guitar playing? When did you kind of start and how did you start and what, what made you want to play guitar? Yeah, that's a that's a it's going back a ways here. But you know, I, I think I picked up a guitar when I was about sixteen, and um, you know, probably because I wanted to impress girls. Yeah. But um, but also, you know, music was definitely it's it was something that moved me, and I you know I was I was you know, you know, out of step with the world. You know, I mean, of course, Alexandria was in Northern Virginia, so I was kind of around the DC scene, uh, the hardcore scene where. You know, minor threat was around and that out of step really resonated mm-hmm. um you know just not quite fitting in you know um 
and uh, and music was kind of a because it was something that I I, I was attracted to, and um, I think I picked up a guitar at some point, and almost immediately was in a band. So that was you know, <laughs> oh you could you could play you know Smoke on the Water. We got a band here. Let's go. <laughs> was that Mutant Drone, or did that come later? No, this would have been earlier. This would have been in high school. This would have been. Um, I can't even remember the name, what we called ourselves, but there was a Polish um, kid who played like heavy metal guitar and he was great. He had this like homemade, just like chunk of wood that had strings on it, but he could just play everything from the Monty Python theme to, uh, you know, Judas Priest, note for note kind of stuff. (laughs) And uh, of course I couldn't do any of that. So, you know, but I could play bass for him. So I played a little bass and, and then moved, then quickly got into um, uh, hanging out with a guy named Mike Brown at high school. And Mike was in a band called United Mutation. Mm-hmm. And um, so I quickly sort of got around the United Mutation crew, which was John Fox and Jay Fox uh, and Mike Brown and Billy Fox. And they were really, um, they kind of moved me into that world of, of the DC hardcore scene at the time, which was a really um, vibrant and relevant feeling scene, you know, with, with minor threat and um, government issue and void and, and all of those great DC bands uh, scream. And, um, and through United Mutation, you know, uh, I started going, you know, I, I was going to the, the, the hardcore shows in DC and, and then United Mutation started playing some of these shows. And, and then um, Mike Brown, uh, who was a drummer. So we had a band in high school. Uh, we had a band also that was called like Snot. It was basically our, or Yom is what it morphed into. But it was just, you know, again, uh, you know, we would do like shadow play from uh, Joy Division and um, mm-hmm. and then just a lot of noise, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but he started playing in a band with this guy Bert Quizno, who was in one of those bands, I can't even remember which one. Whether it was, um, uh, I can't, I can't recall the name of the man. One of the great DC bands, and um, and they started practicing over at Discord House, and um, Discord House was where Ian and Jeff McKay, uh, Jeff uh, lived, Jeff Nelson lived. Yeah, and so I get to s- sort of go over to their house because I had a car, so I could drive Mike Brown and his drum set over to this. <laughs> this house where like everybody was hanging out scream was hanging out you know henry rollins came by one day after he had like he was already in black flag but he came back wow. and um, yep. you know but i was sort of and i was also even in that scene i was an outcast because i was kind of the long hair you know uh long hair guy that was always hanging around because i didn't have my head shaved like like most everybody else right. but uh but through that then i went down to school in richmond uh, I, uh ostensibly to, to study at virginia commonwealth I didn't know what I wanted to study, but it was sort of what you were supposed to do at the time. And within a semester, I was that was sort of in my past because this band had had a trajectory, you know, the idea of being in a band. And that's where I started with Mutant Drone. Mm, Okay, tell me about that band. And like, are you where are you fitting in in Richmond? Are you hanging out at the dairy and places like that? Or absolutely, we were we were part of that dairy scene, which was a great scene. You had Guar there. You had you know some of these great bands like Burma Jam and of mm. course the Alternatives were there so you know we were a pretty tight pack with the Alternatives. I worked with Chris Bobst at Starving Students Moving Company and we were like a, a dynamic duo at Starving Students. 
and I worked with Jim Thompson over at a Grace Place restaurant um, in, in Richmond. So we were really tight with that whole crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mutant Drone was a part of that, too. Um, and Mutant Drone had Eric Unger, actually, right? So he Eric Unger uh, ended up being in the alternatives, yep. playing snacks with the alternatives. He was playing drums with Mutant Drone. Uh, Bruce Blizzard is a great guitar player, and his son now plays for Lucy Darkus. Hmm. I don't know the, today's music, but like they were just on the, I don't know, late night with Dave, uh, not David Letterman, right? <laughs> Showing you my age here. <laughs> was it Stephen Colbert or whatever okay. late night show was? Yeah. Um, so Bruce Blizzard, great guitar player, great banjo player. He exposed me to a lot of music that just I wasn't exposed to, hadn't been exposed to really that much at that time. Okay, so you mentioned like you're in, you know, when you're visiting DC earlier and you you have your long hair and stuff. Like by the time you get to Richmond, I'm just, I'm really curious about, you know, it seems like Always August, once you get to Always August, has one foot in like hippie rock, if I can call it that. (laughs) And like, for lack of a better term, and like, but yet you're playing with all kinds of bands, hardcore bands punk rock weirdos like instrumental bands like uh you know alternatives you mentioned and burma jam who i'd love to hear more about i've never heard burma jam but i've seen the name come up so like your own personal influences are 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 you into stuff like i hate i don't know how you feel about the grateful dead reference but of course it comes up all the time with with uh always august are you were you already into all of that stuff and bringing it with you to richmond or is bruce getting in expanding you and well you know it was it was a great you know it's a it was a great breeding ground for musical um ideas so i was coming in sort of from the dc hardcore scene and i was really like when i first started to play the guitar before i started you know really kind of going okay this is really the music that i really am tuned into and i was listening to a lot of stuff i was really into like leonard skinner and the allman brothers and um and neil young mm-hmm. uh, neil young which you know put me in with Buffalo Springfield, which kind of blew my mind more so than like, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones or, or the Beatles particularly were the, always in the background, but I always loved the Stones too. Um, so it was kind of hard rock, but also Neil Young kind of took it in a different direction. And yes, I listened to the Grateful Dead, but I wouldn't have considered myself a, a big aficionado, aficionado of the dead until later, really. Mm-hmm. Once we, once I got into always August and we started hitting the road and just listening to tunes and, um, you know, at, at some point, uh, you know, really listened a lot more to the Grateful Dead. How did Always August come together? Who did you meet first and how did the band kind of form? It's funny, I was talking to uh, John Kiefer came down uh, and was uh, hung out with me a couple of weekends ago. And so we were getting to do a bit of reminiscing about some of this stuff. And um, I'm trying to think exactly how we met. I think we met through, you know, um, I lived in a dorm at VCU and there was two dorms right downtown. And so that's where mutant drone got started. And John Kiefer was kind of around that whole scene with, Oh, and this was death piggy. So it's sort of Dave Brocky's precursor to Guar. And so we, we, we all flocked around death piggy. Death piggy was a seminal force in our music scene at that time. And I think we just met at those things. And then mutant drone was playing and John was a guitar player. And, you know, then he had a band called judge dread, right? Yep. Um, with Andy Marcus, who wrote, a, just had a lot, a lot of songs, a lot of thoughts coming out of his brain. And it, that was a straight ahead, like, boom, 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 you know, a punk band. 
And John was always looking for a bass player. And he was like, you know, he went through four or five bass players. And, and then I would go in sometimes and just sit in with him and, and kind of, and then I learned all the tunes. And then, you know, I just sort of joined the band. All of a sudden, John and I were in a band together. And then, you know, at some point, you know, we were all kind of between places to live. And uh, we ended up in Oregon Hill in a house together. And, you know, it just, we just were playing tunes. And Judge Dredd kind of morphed into, because John and I also had other interests. You know, we were kind of, that was Andy Marcus, I think, was sort of a, a sort of a precipitant of that band. Mm-hmm. And, um, and John, he and John were right there with that. And, and I was joining in. Um, but then John also wanted to play different stuff, and I wanted to play a lot of different stuff. And that's really sort of the the origins of uh, of Always August. It was John and I playing guitars and, you know, mm-hmm. batting songs around and jamming. Okay, that, that house you just mentioned, is that Wharton's Bluff? Walton's Bluff. Or, War, Walton's Bluff. I'm thinking Wharton Tears, sorry. Yeah. Walton's Bluff. Walton's Bluff was um, out in Verina, Virginia, which was outside of Richmond, a little further down the river. And uh, we had a friend, another sort of figure in our lives, this guy, John Moran, who was a restaurant manager. And he like hired us slightly questionably employable guys, you know, (laughs) who were in bands and like wanted to like leave town whenever we felt like it because we had a gig. You know, the gigs were always Friday and Saturday night, which were the, you know, the nights that he needed help the most. But um uh, let's see what was like. Oh, but he lived out in um, at Sailor's Tavern, which was Walton's Bluff. Mm. And um, Walton was his roommate at the time. Ah, OK. And, um, and John left at some point. He moved out to Charlottesville area and uh, and Walt was living there. And so we just called it Walton's Bluff. And because it was a spectacular spot for us, we were urban living. You know, we were living in the, you know, in the city. And um, this was our place that we could go to outside of the city. We could, you know climb down the cliffs there the the bluff down to the river and go swimming in the river and um and just hang out and we played out there all the time and we um we partook of some substances out there because it was a safe space where we could just run you know screaming through the woods you know and we we recorded a seminal recording which um was kind of what launched always august you probably Mm -hmm. talked to john john probably told that story yeah, I remember now. Yeah, it was kind of like, a, you know, a, a jam session that kind of was captured. We were out at the place. We were sitting. We just set up our instruments on the porch of this house, which looked out over, you know, the, the James River. And of course, we were in a uh, we were tuned into a different wavelength than, you know, most of the world was. And we were. And we were playing tunes and we just recorded it because we recorded everything we did just because, I don't know, back then you did that. You know, you had cassette tapes all over the place and you'd like, oh, remember that little thing that you did in that jam back when? And we turn it into a song or something. And and we just recorded this whole thing. And there was this long running little theme that we were going between songs where, you know, Tim would be the MC of the Verina Horseshoe Chuckers annual, you know, fifth annual festival. And you know, you know, potato salad. Really. It was this just kind of goofball uh, running commentary yeah. that went between the songs. And it was just a weird, I, I wish I had the tape. I, somewhere that tape probably exists. Mm-hmm. And that is the tape that John handed to, uh, to Ginn at, at one of the Black Flag shows, mm-hmm. which was just not what, you know, it was not Black Flag sounding stuff at that point because yeah. we were... We were, that was a very acid, you know, driven tape. And um, 
but he, but but we had read about Ginn, you know, um, referencing the Grateful Dead as being part of his influences. And so we knew that he also had sort of broader music, not just the Grateful Dead. He was also into a lot of the jazz, you know, Ornette Coleman and, you know, sort of the classic um, uh, jazz players. And so yeah, we had an affinity. We felt we had an affinity, even though we were just a bunch of kids. And, you know, Black Flag was like they were rock stars at that point. Yes, but captured lightning in a bottle on this tape. You know, uh, synchronicity is yeah. it's funny how that happens sometimes. Okay, so tell me about the Always August summer camp for wayward young adults. Uh, yeah, we had, been, we had been on the road a couple of times at that point, and, um, and we were getting ready to go back on the road. And, you know, we had... You know, road was hard. Road was always hard, but it was always a lot of fun. And it was a big adventure. And we would come back with these tales. And, you know, all of our friends were like, wow, man, you know, uh, you know, you just have these weird, weird adventures. And um, and we had some we had a bunch of, of friends, you know, one of the found early, early Hotel X guys, which was Kirk Henderson, uh, who lives up in New York these days. I don't know what he's doing much, you know, in terms of music, but um, he had a little band and then. This guy, Neil Ferguson, was in the band with him. They had a house, basically. Everybody who had a house and played music had a band. That was the house band. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that in Richmond. And Kirk had recorded our first album. Yeah. Um, and so we were tight with him. And, you know, he was in a place where he was itching to get on the road. And and then Jeff's girlfriend, Katie, was ready to go. And then, uh, you know, we had some extended members of the band, which were, you know, that, that played with us sometimes. And then Steve, this guy, Steve Gutowski goes by Steve Saeed now, uh, Steve Smith now, I guess, who is just a monster violin player. Like he was like a musician, like, you know, we weren't. And, um, and he wanted to go and he was like 18 and, you know, just graduated high school, but was just this monster musician had so much music coming out of his head and his his fingers that it was you know it was hard to contain as a matter of fact i don't know if anybody's told you the story about um recording uh, out at walton's bluff for um largeness with holes we had we, we set up sort of an isolation booth for him to record some of that fiddle right and you know basically the isolation booth was a couple of blankets that were you know a bunch of blankets that were hanging from the ceiling around him and you know, you'd hear, you know, uh, you'd hear the thing kick in. And then when he was getting ready to play, all of a sudden it was like a whirling dervish. You'd see the blankets flying, the bow hitting the blankets. And it was, you know, it was just a kind of a crazy scene. He was, he was a wild man. So all these friends wanted to go and we're like, well, you know, we've only got room for like five or six of us in the van. Right. And, you know, Kirk was like, well, I'm, I'm down for, uh, you know, driving my car. You know, he's got a little, it's like a Ford Fiesta or whatever. I can't even remember Ford Escort. And then, um, and then Steve Gutowski, the fiddle player had a, uh, VW van, which also kind of altered the whole flow of the thing because, you know, VW van, you know, going up the, particularly when you're going over the mountains has to go really slow. So he kind of had to hang with that. Right. <laughs> So this is like quite the touring party you have going. It's a caravan. We had, and 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 Neil and Kirk would would open some of the shows as uh, Hotel X, and you know, so we had sort of a, a, a an accompanying band. And old Bruce Blizzard was with us, and Jimmy Gaffrey. Right, I forgot about that. So Bruce Blizzard, who I was in Mutant Drone, also came along. So he offered a, sort of a 
another guitar voice that was on that trip and mm. so they're already calling themselves Ho hotel x at this at this point yes but it's a different hotel x mm -hmm. i mean it's sort of a different hotel x you know tim wasn't in the band at that time yeah. he kind of took over the hotel x because it was such a great name and such a, gotcha. a local spot and um so yeah so it wasn't the same hotel x but they were played at Hot hotel x was their house mm -hmm. that was where kirk and okay. Neil were living yep Okay, so geography. Now, it was recorded by Phil Newman at Spinhead. At first, I thought maybe it was the classic example of an SST 12-inch EP with leftovers from another session, but I, I don't think either of your previous LPs were recorded at Spinhead. I think they were just kind of maybe mixed there. No, this was, this was uh, you know, uh, John and I were talking about that too. He's like, you know, we recorded a bunch of other stuff there and I don't know why we, you know, I, we were trying to figure out why we just did an EP. It might've been because the other tunes that we did were like covers, but we did a great, well, in my mind, a great, um, like a hurricane, Neil Young. I can't remember what else we did, but there were some other tunes from that session that just didn't, you know, we just, we, I guess we wanted to hone it down to four, even the Sama Liuk is not an original tune um, for sort of tunes, basically. Mm -hmm. So did you go out there specifically to record? Were you on tour when you recorded this? We were on tour. So that was, you know, we were on tour and um, it gave us sort of the opportunity. So they were like, okay, you're coming out to LA, you know, uh, you got anything to record? And we're like, sure, we got some stuff to record. And, and they hooked us up with Phil, who was great from Painted Willie. And um, he was a great guy to hang out with and, and to, to hang out in his studio. And, mm. um, you know, we had a, we had a really good time. I, I wish that we had, the, I, I don't know if, if John or Tim has mentioned this, I can't really remember. And it might be more from my perspective is, you know, I wish we had had more time and we were, we had more forethought on some of our recordings because I think there were some, when I listened to geography just recently, I was just like, Oh man, I wish that we had taken a little bit more time to work on this because there, I really like some of the songs, but some of the execution was, um, well, it was what we were as, you know? mm -hmm. well, I, I, we've talked to other people that recorded at spinhead and I feel like a lot of it was probably done live on the, off the floor. Yeah, we would have, we, we wanted to record everything. Um, well, we record everything live, but we did do overdubs also. Okay. But yeah, we were all playing because, and if you listen to this stuff, there's pretty much no way we could have, I mean, I guess, yeah, yeah, I guess you can, but it was very, there was a lot of interaction that was going on with us looking at each other and, you know, mm -hmm. um, feeling out where something was about to happen. Right. Okay. So the first track is Flatland written by John. Yeah. It starts with Steve, though, coming in on the bongos. Tell, remind me again how Steve came into the picture. I feel like you picked him up hitchhiking or something like that. Well, no. Um, we may have re-met him picking up hitchhiking in Richmond, but I knew him in junior high school. I was friends with his older brother when I was in high school. Oh, ah, okay. So I met him when he was still, you know, uh, you know, I mean, he was probably like 13 when I first met him. And, um, and then I, then he, that was up in Alexandria and I moved down to Richmond and then several years later, I run into him on the street and just like, oh man, what are you doing down here? And he was kind of beating around. And so he ended up kind of hanging out at the house and, um, you know, he, he had been on this, he'd just come back from the, the, this thing called the great peace march, where he basically walked across the country with this group that was, um, sort of an indigenous rights, 
mm-hmm. awareness uh, function. And, you know, he'd had a big, heavy experience and been around some pretty amazing people that were outside of our everyday sort of experience, you know, spent a bunch of time in the Hopi reservation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where Mesa, this is a little bit of a lead into Mesa, but, but, uh, so he had, so he'd been back, he'd come back. So, so we were like, come on over to the house, hang out. And our house was like, you know, people were sleeping everywhere, you know? So I think he kind of enjoyed being over there as opposed to at his, his mom's place. Um, which really was not something that I think he had lived in because, you know, she, they, she had moved down to Richmond and, you know, he was kind of looking for a place. And so he kind of ended up in our world and basically he joined, I mean, he kind of was, was hanging out at the house when we were getting ready to go on our first tour and we're like, you want to come? You know I mean? That's, that's kind of how things were that (laughs) and he's like, sure. I've got, and he had a Kunga, he had gotten a Kunga um, that he'd kind of picked up bongos. I think when he was on this walk the thing and he really wanted to play gunga and so he was kind of learning as we all were and uh and he was just like game so it was like he jumped in the van and headed out with us he's got him dialed by this point for sure yes at this point he'd already spent some time with some of the uh the latin players around town this is later you know this is a couple years later and he really he he owned it man he he went for it and and uh you know, he picked up a lot of really, and then continued to be, um, to really, uh, have a career as a percussionist. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned you and John kind of playing together, especially, you know, just the two of you, even in the early days, is that something that you did? Like when I listen to this, I just hear you guys really, you hear, uh, Keith Richards and Ron Wood talk about the ancient art of weaving, they call it with the, just, is their style kind of that was something we definitely were, were aware of each other and wanting to do like a, you know, doom, you know, he, I hit a chord and then he hits a chord and I hit a chord and, Mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to, you know, take it outside of, I mean, this is where we, but by this time we were definitely listening to a lot of Grateful Dead, all of us, John and Tim had grown up, I think, uh, listening to a lot more dead. And we were very aware of like hinting at things, you know, trying to hint at, tunes before they actually kicked in mm. and that's kind of where steve came in with that that uh you know kunga intro yeah. where you know it, i don't exactly know how that started I, i'm not really sure how that started but it was like that was how we played that song you know which doesn't like when you hear that kunga intro you don't think of that flatland right necessarily um but um, no i know yeah. what you mean if you listen to you know the grateful dead live you can tell oh they're going into playing in the band or whatever right yeah and you it might be a, it might yeah. be five minutes before they actually kick into it yeah for sure um and unfortunately for us sometimes there was a little bit of that meandering over it would take us five minutes to get around oh, to i think that's the point of always august though it's it is yeah. and we were we were down for that experience and yeah this one flatland seems lyrically maybe to be about touring to me yeah it is being on the road and just you know going, man, you know, there's no home, you know, we're sleeping on the ground, we're sleeping on people's couches, we're sleeping on people's floors, we were not a hotel down there, you know, <laughs> and, um, and there's just times where you're just like, God, I just want to like, you know, curl up in a bed, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, and, and see somebody other than like band people, and you know, people out at nightclubs, and, you know, that, that sort of craving of, uh, 
you know, a partner, you know, I mean, we were all kind of at that stage where we'd been on the road for a couple of years. We've been in bands. We kind of had had some relationships that are really tough when you're in a band that's just running all over the place. Yeah, I think he was kind of capturing that spirit of a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe feeling like we wanted to maybe not have such a chaotic life. For sure. Yeah. Okay. The next track is one of yours, One Straw Revolution. What can you tell me about, about that song? So One Straw Revolution um, is a book by this guy, Masanbu Fukuoka. And um, I was telling you about this restaurant that I worked at with Jim Thompson and Tim Harding, Harding worked there for many years. And there was a a guy named Michael King, um, who was the restaurant owner. And again, he basically somehow was able to um, pull in such wayward musicians into actual workers for a restaurant, keep a, a working restaurant. And he was an amazing classical guitar player and just a deep, he is a cla- you know guitar player and a deep thinker and, um, and turns on to a lot of ideas. I think Tim really also has a really strong bond and, um, and and this book, One Straw Revolution, uh, was kind of about how you can make a change just by doing little things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you know, you're you're sitting there as a band, you're always kind of going out there and doing this. And we were not like, uh, you know, uh, at that really by the time we were always August, you know, I said I might have picked up the guitar when I was 16, you know, to impress the girls. But, but that quickly disappeared to just wanting to do something artistic and creative and and, you know, and have some impact with, with my energies in the world. And that's kind of where one straw revolution kind of came from. Okay. And the first, the first verse is a, I basically stole that from William Blake, you know, that he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses that joy as it flies by lives in eternity sunrise, you know, about not being attached to things. And, um, Okay. Yeah. And that was, that was something that I really liked. Uh, again, when I listened to it, I'm like, Oh man, you know, if anybody deserves needs to be auto-tuned, it's me. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, I listened to that and I cringe at my voice a lot, but you know, of course I can picture where I was in my, in my head when I was you know, struggling to sing, you know, what I was thinking and feeling. And mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I hear some acoustic guitars on on that track. Did you travel with acoustic guitars? We we did sometimes. I'm trying to think of when we recorded that out in California. I played a big old Burns, which was a semi-acoustic guitar, mm. big old beater of a guitar. And um, I know that when we came back to Richmond, we overdubbed some of that um, that guitar. And this is where, when I listened to the whole album, I'm like, you know, we could have you know, we could have pulled some of that guitar work in a little bit tighter. Like sometimes there's three guitars playing and I'm going like, we don't need all three of those guitars. As a matter of fact, you know, it's kind of, cl- you know, junking up the, the sound to me a little bit, but, but again, that, that part of that was our, we didn't have a lot of um, a studio time was expensive in those days. You know, it's not like you're sitting there on your computer, you know, uh, with hours and hours to play with this. It was like right. every hour was, you know, uh, was a lot of money to us. And so we wanted to kind of get in there, get basics and, and get out. And, you know, I wish that we had spent more time at some point. I wish we had the masters that we could remaster it because yeah. I think there's, yeah. I think those things could be, uh, be nice to play with at least. Mm-hmm. Ed Crawford gets a thanks on the, on the back of this record. I'm assuming you played with Firehose. I, I actually hear some, 
I hear some fire hose in this song, maybe a little bit. Well, um, that that could very well be because fire hose was a big. Um, they were in heavy rotation when we were on the road um, after our, our first tour. I think that I can't remember exact timelines on which tour was which. You know, that's all a little fuzzy. But um, but when that fire hose, that first fire hose CD came out, that was in heavy rotation. And they were really helpful to us when we would be staying out in Pedro. So we'd stay with Ed and Davo was living with them. And, and, and as a matter of fact, on the big tour where we had the, the um, sort of the family vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we had that VW van. Well, Mike um, Watt was a, you know, as a VW mechanic. Yeah. We got out to California, you know, we'd blown a head gasket and we needed to do some work on the thing. And so we were in Ed and Davo's at back alley and we were dropping the motor and we were having some trouble. And um, and basically they they called up, you know, Watt and he came over and he'd had a bad accident where he had a um, sort of an explosion that uh, kind of burned them pretty good mm-hmm. at one point, not that long before that. And I think it was working on a VW. And so I think this was a really big thing for him to do. Cause I mean, we were basically jacking the, the car up and dropping the engine out of it to rebuild the engine. And, uh, and uh, that, that's the problem with touring VW. Right. <laughs> you gotta be a mechanic to do it. And, and uh, you know, did you get it back on the road? We did get it back on the road. And I, I think that I, you know, I mean, we might have gotten it back on the road without Mike, but I think it's safe to say that Mike really kind of saved uh, saved us there. I mean, that's the kind of that's the kind of guys those guys were. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, again, Mike Watt was, you know, one of our idols at that point. I mean, we'd all, you know, the Minutemen were in heavy rotation, and you know, and then uh, you know, and then you know that sort of tragedy with D dying, and and then Mike, you know forming another band and, you know, with Ed and, um, and then, you know, those guys, so they would let us kind of hang out when we were out in LA, you know, between shows. So we, we'd stay with them for three or four days when we were out there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was great. So that's why I, th- I think Ed's on there because I think he hosted us when we were out there. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, flipping it over, we've got the McCoy Tyner song. Yes. I'm a Yuka. Yeah. That was some beautiful stuff. Tim Harding is, um, an amazing sponge of music from all over the world, from all genres. And uh, at that point in time, we were listening to a lot of the cl- sort of classic cool jazz with, you know, Miles stuff and, and, uh, and Charlie Parker, you know, even going back to the bop. And, uh, and a lot of that was Tim's influence. And he was really sharing a lot of that. And we were picking up on that and, and, and listening to a lot of that. And then at one point, and, you know, my favorite things was, you know, the, the Coltrane, my favorite things was one of my favorite albums. I kind of dived deep into that and loved McCoy's playing uh, like on my favorite things and, and stuff. But we were playing a couple of jazz standards where, you know, we were like, OK, we want to play some stuff that's got a head. And then we jam off of that head and right. go off of that. And then at one point, Tim was just, you know, because he was playing so much. He was voracious. You know, he was just listening to stuff and playing stuff. And, you know, he'd never played bass before the band started. I mean, it was like, I don't know, it was maybe two or three months before before we recorded, he'd started playing bass. Oh, now, wow. he had a, he did have an illustrious um, uh, career as a uh, penny whistle um, player in his uh, formative years. So in, where he was from in Williamsburg, there was a, uh, 
a penny whistle, I don't know, ethos or something. <laughs> but really, but he had not really played a lot of music and um, but he just knew music and he absorbed it and he could um, he could recreate it. He was the best singer of all of us and hardly ever sang. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think he did song. I think we did a um, we recorded a Steely Dan tune um, out at Phil's that didn't make it onto uh, anything. I don't think I don't, I don't even I don't know where that recording would be. I don't know if there's any, uh, but he was a great singer and he sang that one. We did it live quite a bit. We haven't talked about Tom Wall. Tell me about Tom. So Tom um, grew up with Tim's, really Tim's older brother, but Tim, you know, they were in the neighborhood. It was a bunch of neighborhood kids. So Tom and Tim went back, you know, many years. And, you know, Tim just has this sort of enthusiastic spirit. And so, you know, Tom was like, man, Tim is doing some cool things. And, you know, and Tom played saxophone. I think Tom's father was like a uh, sort of a musical mentor to a lot of people in the area where Tim grew up. And so, um, you know, at some point, I, I don't exactly know how you'd have to ask Tim actually how that actually happened. But Tim said, hey, you know, my buddy Tom wants to play some some saxophone with us. Can, you know, can he play? And, you know, I, I can't remember how, how that all came about, but we knew by that point, um, by the time we recorded this, we knew Tom pretty well. He'd actually come out to a few shows with John Mila, who's the trumpet player, Brian Zabriskie, who's the trombone player, mm-hmm. buddies of us. They had a couple of times actually come out on the road with us. They were professional musicians. Tom was, Tom was not, Tom was a, great musician but he wasn't like a pro but john milo was a professional musician brian zabriskie was a professional musician you know they they made their living playing music and playing with the symphony and you know all, or you know orchestras and stuff and um and they were they were i don't it's hard for me to imagine what they must have been thinking knowing music like they knew music that they wanted to play with us who <laughs> who really we had a lot of spirit. That's what I will give us. We had a ton of spirit and willingness to just go out on a limb with music. And, um, and they would, they would take their own money and come travel to play with us. Mm -hmm. We've talked to other SST bands that had horns, you know, and the players were, you know, session guys, or like you say, professional musicians, but they really got off on, you know, being a part of that world and, improvising which is not something you you do much of when you're playing in a symphony right so yeah we had a there's a lot of room in our tunes and we would just we were more than happy to open up more room for uh for whoever was playing but tom was so john mila was um he just would i mean he was a monster soloist and he like um half the time is sort of a showpiece for him really where he i don't know if you remember that but it's a largeness and um brian zabriskie also was just a real he was uh he had great sounds and uh real but tom was always a real understated subtle player as a matter of fact tom i would find myself when we would be playing and he happened to be playing with us live i would all of a sudden i would play a line and all of a sudden tom would be right on right behind me with that line and um and we would sort of get these things going where, uh, you know, if I played a da na 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 bum bum bum, you know, he would he would play that, you know, and I, then we'd start doing it. Some of those things actually took shape because he captured a line that that I was playing or John was playing, and you know, when a horn captures it, it becomes a little bit more of a thing than just a passing riff. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, yeah, 
Yeah. And uh, and he, that was that was a real uh, beautiful contribution that Tom made to the band when he was playing with us. Mm-hmm. Okay, you mentioned Steve's song is the last song, Mesa. Mesa, yeah. oh my heart, man. That's that's a powerful tune. It was a powerful tune then. It was a powerful tune the first time I heard Steve do it. I was like, you know, ba- basically in tears. And um, you know, that was part of Steve. That was sort of the story of Steve's experience uh, on the Hopi Reservation. You know, uh, with a you know displaced people. Although I see displaced, the Hopi had been you know at Arabi, the city there, probably the longest and inha- continuously inhabited uh, settlement in in the in North America, and is on the Hopi Reservation. And um, you know, so they're people with like deep roots. And for us, like all of the guys in the band, you know, we were kind of suburban uprooted we had that sort of feel that we were trying to come to terms with and um and try to find something more authentic than this suburban world that surrounded us and we you know kind of felt like if we didn't do something we were going to be come a part of we were going to get swallowed up by and steve had gone on this trip across the country walking across the country with these people and then and this was just so much of steve's um sensitivity to something more ancient than the modern world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was a really amazing tune. Again, one of those tunes that I wish I could have the masters to and rework because that of all the tunes, that's one that really deserves to be pushed out there more. You mentioned Jim Gaffery. Is that how you say his last name? Jimmy Gaffery. Yes. He took the cover photo. Took the cover photo, and that was actually an um, uh, a landscape art piece that was the photograph uh, on the front, which was you know these balls in the dirt, mm. and it was you know it was a part of his one of his uh, art piece. He's an artist, musician, all around you know amazing guy. He plays with Hotel X. Uh, he has played with Hotel X, the the later version, Tim's uh, later version of Hotel mm. X, quite a bit. Um, so yeah, Jimmy was also there. He came on the the road trip with us. Um, the the family vacation uh, tour, the uh, spring training tour, whatever. No, that wasn't spring training. That was a different one. Yeah, so he took that picture, and he was definitely part of our crowd. You know, everybody that was involved and in, in, and um, contributed was people that were close because, of course, we didn't pay anybody, so they were going to have to be friends. <laughs> uh, there's, I think, a painting on the back cover or a photo of a, a stucco wall. I can't tell yeah. which. That's a photo, and... Um, and so, uh, let's see, that kind of was that geography theme that we were thinking about, you know, the um, arrangement of constituent elements, which, you know, that, that, that sort of landscape art piece that Jimmy's got, you know, took a picture on the front. And then he had a bunch of photographs that he had taken uh, that we also wanted to, you know, how that this could be anywhere in the world. And there was a little bit of you know, breaking down that was happening, you know, there's, it was very patchy, had been through a lot, you know, many iterations of pain had gone on that wall. I can't quite remember what we were thinking, but we just, we trusted Jimmy just to give us something that was artistic really is ultimately we were looking for. Do you know how much longer the band carried on after this EP came out? It wasn't a whole lot longer. We got back from, from being out there. We finished up a tour Um, you know, we were tired at that point, you know, flatland is a good indication of that. Um, that's just sort of weary of, 
of that road. You know, we, we went into the so gung ho, the first couple of tours, it was like, you know, sleeping on the ground was, you know, a good piece, a good patch of grass was just like a, you know, heaven sent kind of bed as those where we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. But by the fifth or sixth, uh, fifth or sixth trip, we were like, mm, God, you know, this is <laughs> the novelty's worn off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we still loved it. We still had moments, but you know, there's the problem with playing on the road is, you know, you got your two hours at night that can be magical, but man, you get 22 hours that you got to work with. And a lot of that has to be his driving. And then there's like hanging out and, you know, finding places to be comfortable and to, you know, to, to feed your soul and not just uh, kill time. And, and that was, that was hard uh, to continue doing. For sure. Yeah. So what did you do next? Did you keep playing music? Are you playing music now? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't play like in bands. I, I kind of sort of stay out of bands because I just don't have the time and energy to really, you know, pull something together. But um, but I play. So right after the band, I started playing. And probably even at the very end of the band, I was starting to play mandolin because I wanted a more. I had gone down to the Galax Fiddlers Festival, and which is a sort of a famous uh, sort of roots music um, fiddle festival in... Um, in Southwest Virginia. And that's kind of how I ended up in Roanoke, which is where I am now. Mm. Um, and I had gone down there with Billy Fox, who was in United Mutation. He took me and Mike Brown down there. That's actually, we went down there in high school, but that was kind of a formative musical experience where I got, I got around like this mountain community where people came in with fiddles and banjos and guitars, but really fiddle and banjo driven music. And they had this sort of, you know, deep, uh, songbook that they drew on and, and, um, and it's very traditional, but there was a lot of young people that were really energetic. And I think that there's a lot of people that sort of ended up playing old time music that were, or, or ended up playing sort of punk rock, you know, or kind of being in that scene that eventually gravitated towards the old time. Mm -hmm. I'm still kind of connected with that, uh, scene. And, um, yeah, so I play some music these days, but but uh, not not really as a band. But I do play like all the time. I play my guitar. I keep a guitar right by my desk, and and I'm I'm playing off. And I play like Western swing. You know, I love playing kind of jazz chords and learning jazz chords and and melodies. And the latest tune I worked up was crazy. You know, Willie Nelson uh, mm-hmm. uh, tune. I just yeah. There's something about that connection between punk rock and roots music. I mean, even yeah. like those early LA bands that, you know, either yeah. incorporated yeah. it in or went on to play in, you know, rootsier bands. Yeah. And the blasters, you know, yeah. came out of a really rootsy thing. And, um, you know, that was, that was certainly part of our awareness there. And, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I still know a lot of people that kind of are, you know, that yeah, even the hobo groups that kind of came into, you know, they sort of played in, you know, kind of, again, it's DIY right. and that's, Part of it it's just yeah. it's very um community based mm-hmm. you're yeah. always part of a community you know like everyone at our shows when we were in richmond playing was of course all of our friends and whatnot and in other bands it was just a great little community and yeah lee thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today i really appreciate right. it thank you for keeping alive some of these old recordings which um you know, have a lot of spirit to them and you know get lost in the in the big river you know i, I recently uh, reread siddhartha and um you know all the sounds that are around us 
are all in the river and it flows by and, you know, we contributed to it. And it's, I'm just, I'm really actually very appreciative of the work that you do to kind of keep it, uh, keep it out and keep it alive. Yeah. Well, there's lots of people that are, you know, really into, into this stuff. So great having all you guys on. Brant, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, um, I hope that we'll run into each other at some musical experience somewhere someday soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show, Lee. It really, you know, helps one get to know this 12-inch for sure. It's like, uh, like I said, for some reason, finally, it's kind of like, you know how some of those other records that we've went through over the <laughs> over the years, I'm going to say, my goodness, over the years, yeah. how they take like, three or four releases until i'm like okay maybe i should go back and start from the start this is the one that did it for me so it's great to hear that uh story from lee about the band and but traveling on the road too and uh i just love love as i said at the outset of the the show here i love the idea of what wrenching on a vw to get always august back on the road for sure yeah um a, a few cool things, Ryan. He mentions, I think he's, we're Canadian, eh? So like, um, are we, eh? Yeah. So I don't really know like how the Virginia, how the geography pun intended is around Virginia, but like, I think he says he, he was kind of from Alexandria in, in like Northern Virginia, which I think mm-hmm. is pretty close to Falls Church and that kind of area. And he's talking about the band United Mutation uh, with uh, Mike Brown and I think John Jay and Billy Fox. So United Mutation, Ryan, um, they have a record, like a co-release between the band and Discord, like one of those half numbers that Discord did. Yeah, yeah. uh, Called Fugitive Family. And that's, I think it's that and some demos, or maybe it's just all demos, I can't remember, but it's recently been reissued on Radio Rahim. It's kind of cool reissue label. And uh, the End on End podcast with Brian and Jeff, they covered that Fugitive Family record, and they've had like uh, Jay Fox and Michael Brown on the show talking about, you know, that Falls Church scene and kind of how it, how they fit in with the DC hardcore scene. That's really yeah. cool to listen to. It, it's been a while since I listened to it. And I, I, if I remember right, uh, they do talk a, a little bit about playing in Richmond with Always August and and Alternatives. Later on, they had a band, United Mutation, that was more like a, you know, like one of these kinds of bands, like Alternatives, Jazzier. Okay. And I don't think they ever released it. Hmm. I don't. I don't remember the details, but... Uh, that's worth checking out for sure. And he mentions, Lee mentions in this interview, uh, Mike Brown was in a band with uh, this guy, Bert, which I think is a band called Second Wind. Oh, Ryan. Wow. Not the new wind. Right. The second wind. When is that book coming out, by the way? Yeah, we I can be know. the new wind? Yeah, I don't Feels know. Feels like it's supposed to come out. Like, I can't wait to read it. Yeah. Talking about Death Peggy, kind of being at the center of the Richmond scene. Yeah. Yep. That's a good record, man. That Death Piggy record. It's all been reissued. You can find it. Um, Little teaser on Hotel X, Ryan. So, like, way later, you know, like, pretty much 100 episodes from now, when we start getting into the 90s, we're going to 
be here in a whole bunch of, of uh, Hotel X. There's like six records on SST. Yeah. Uh, Tim Harding, uh, Jimmy Gafferty, who did the album art for this and was like part of the Always August crew. He's in Hotel mm. X. Uh, Chris Farmer, Ron Curry, and Jim Thompson of Alternatives. Yeah, right on. Yeah. So, and like when you hear Tim's playing, you're kind of like, you can see why he was headed towards like a jazzier kind of territory. Oh, yeah. He's got some serious moves on this record. Yeah. You want to talk about these tunes? Sure, man. History Lesson Part 2. So before we get going, here's the final word from the Spaceman on Always August, all right? Yeah. Always August Geography out of the SST catalog. This EP flows from the ice-capped polar regions of the north through the turgid heat of the equator and ends up in the pure white desolation of the southern pole. Picking up pieces of the world as it goes by, this new four-song record is the journey of your life. SST 193, 12-inch and cassette, $6.50. Yo. Yeah, so as mentioned in the interview, this was recorded by Phil Newman at his Hollywood studio Spinhead, mixed by Adam Green and Kirk Henderson, along with the band at Radioactive Audio, which... Again, don't quote me on this. I believe was Adam's <laughs> studio back in Richmond. <laughs> they, don't quote me on this though, but wasn't Phil Newman in uh, Painted Willie? He was. You, I will quote you on that. Okay. Uh, I believe Radioactive is where they recorded Largeness with Holes. Uh, this was mastered by Rich Ford, apparently. According to the liner notes, I believe we'll get to this when we check the Dead Wax, but it's got the JG stamp on it. So who knows? Uh and as you mentioned, Ryan, this came out in 1988 on 12-inch EP and cassette. Yeah, never on CD. So, Ryan, we've got track one, side one, written by, it's called Flatland, written by John. Steve Splash Matthews kind of gets us gets the record going on some congas. Yeah. I don't remember the congas being quite as out front on the other records as on this one. Yeah, they're there, but not nearly like this. The congas, the bongos. Yeah. They really set the tone for this whole record right off the bat. Yeah, it starts with a full minute of percussion and then the band kind of just trickles in almost like, you know, how Lee and I were talking about in the interview, the dead would come out of mm -hmm. one song and into another when they played live. Kind of reminds me of that. Tim's bass playing is just amazing, especially yeah. when you consider he didn't start playing until the band started. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this song's about touring, and I loved Lee's quote in the interview about touring, the touring ex experience. I thought it was pretty poignant. He says something along the lines of f finding places to feed your soul and not just kill time. Yeah. In, for those other 22 hours of the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely get some, like, Meat Puppets vibes yep. on this track, too, in a good way. Yeah. Track two, One Straw Revolution, lit, written by Lee. Uh, named after a book he talks about in the interview. Uh, I'm not going to try and say the author's name, but I did read a review of it that said, uh, you can call it Zen and the Art of Farming. It's a manifesto about farming, eating, and the limits of human knowledge. It presents mm. a radical challenge to the global systems we rely on for our food. Uh, Lee's on vocals on this one. 
I, I think he does a great job. Uh, I think I mentioned Firehose in the interview, but when yep. re- when re-listening to it since, I, I actually think more Minutemen with that kind of acoustic Spanish guitar. Yeah, there is some Spanish guitar or acoustic. Uh, yep. The solo is really sweet on this track, though. Yeah, and it's kind of got that Spanish folk-sounding pattern that they keep returning to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and along with Tim, I would just say Jeff it was actually a really accomplished drummer by this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, they were really, really playing on this record. Mm-hmm. And you can see why they, you know, Tim, of course, went on to something else. It's just too bad that we don't have more Always August to dig into. Yeah, well, by this point, they'd been touring like crazy. So that'll do it, well, man. For sure. They're road hogs yeah. and they can't, and they've never been tighter, you know? Flipping it over, Sama Layuka, written by McCoy Tyner. Uh, so for people who don't know, he was a jazz pianist and composer. He played a lot with John Coltrane. Uh, later formed mm-hmm. his own group and released many classic records under his own name. Uh, he continued recording into the 2000s, passed away last year, actually, 2020. Yeah. Easily one of the most influential pianists in jazz history. This track was originally on his album of the same name, released on the Milestone label in 1974. Uh, The original version had Gary Bartz on alto sax. On this one, we have Tom Wall. Uh, McCoy's version is, of course, more piano-centric. There's no guitar in it. It's got other instruments like vibes, marimba, oboe, tenor sax. It's a really cool song if you've never heard it. Mm-hmm. This is a great version. has a real live off the floor vibe to it for me that I just love. Uh, you can really hear it in the guitar playing. It's the longest track on the record at almost eight minutes. Uh, I don't know if it's Steve or Jeff, but there's these kind of they almost sound like rim shots. I don't know what it is. It's not a snare drum, uh, but I I really like it. Might be the timbales. Yeah, I don't maybe, know. Maybe. Don't know. What do you it's think? Vi- what do you think of that one, Ryan? Sama Layuka. Yeah, I loved it, man. I like I said, side two um, sunk the hook in for me. It's just an awesome, atmospheric, post-bop, fusiony take on a McCoy classic. I loved it. Yeah, I thought they did a re- like they really, really did it justice for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then the the last track is written by Steve. And I don't know if we've seen a Steve track before or heard Steve sing. He's got a lot of soul in his vocals, but uh, this was written about Steve's experience, I think Lee says, at the Great Peace March for Global Nuclear Disarmament, which took place in 1986. They left Los Angeles on March 1st, 86, and arrived in Washington, D.C. on November 15th, uh, 1986. 3,700 miles in nine months. Uh, Lee also mentions an indigenous rights group that Steve was was hooked up with around the time uh, with the Hopi Reservation, which is located in northeast Arizona. Again, don't know my geography in the U.S. too well, but uh, maybe I know Mesa is a city in Arizona, so maybe the title has something to do with with that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, definitely some Phil Lesh coming through in Tim's playing, which is super busy and all over the neck, but like in the best way. Uh, Steve's vocal is awesome. This sounds like something you'd hear someone perform like in the Woodstock movie or something. Like very, <laughs> very 60s, almost a folk rock feel. 
Yeah, it's re- it's a really moving track. Yeah, it really leaves you, you know, I don't want to say exhausted, but it, I mean, if you're paying attention to this track, it's intense. Yeah, well, we can relate to those issues in Canada too of you oh, know, yeah. indigenous rights. Um, I hear at one point what sounds like some keys, I think, but they're not credited. Um, it's a great song, and and that's it, man. Like, it's really too bad. There's there's not a full length album, another full length, you know, mm. or that these tracks are lost. It's twenty three minutes total, but I don't know. I also like a good EP, so you know, all killer, no filler. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, we've had some EPs on the show that we could do without. And when you have an EP where you, you can't get enough of, that's where you would rather be, right? My mind just immediately went to Minute Flag. <laughs> minute Flag? Oh, I thought you were going to think of Star Power. Come on, cash, what about... Cash grab, what about, man. What about Fetch the Water? Come on, Fetch the Water. Yeah. There's some Spanish guitar in that, isn't there? Right, yeah. 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 The cover art is by Jimmy Gaffery, uh, like I said, who we'll see later in Ho- Hotel X. I thought that was Snowballs on the cover. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It kind of looks like, like it could be, it could be snowballs, could be like balls of salt or something. It's just really hard to tell what it is. I mean, I kind of thought like it was, I don't know, it's a total stretch. But, you know, with the song Mesa, I was thinking that this is like maybe a medicine ring or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. But it also looks like there's some serious uh, tire treads through there. Um, so I, I have no idea. It could be agricultural related. It could be spiritual related. S- balls of salt, balls of limestone. Don't know. The lettering there with the classic psychedelic Always August logo. That's Katie Gibbons, who I believe was, was John's girlfriend at the time. Yeah. Katie could probably do the uh, the album artwork for Screaming Trees or... Oh, Gary, yeah, Con- man. oh yeah. Gary Lee Connor records, right? Yeah, for sure. What about some credits on the back, Ryan? And it has a little a little uh, spiel about some geography too, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Well, it says, uh, special thanks to Phil Newman, Mark Siegel, Ed Crawford, Bill Craner, Julie I, Dermot John Mela, Jeff Haig for equipment vital in this recording. And then it says, and as always, words are not enough for the people at SST and Global. And don't forget, Always August are the guys that uh, are always talking about how great SST was was to them, right? Yep, for sure. They just have a barbecue for them when they showed up. Yeah, man. Mike Watt fixes their VW, right? Yeah. Sleeping on Ed Crawford's floor. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah, there's a, it's a dictionary definition of geography back here. Kind of weird how the cover is, like, the photo is placed on the cover. Off-center? Yeah. Well, it's kind of weird with the Always August vibe that we don't have a psychedelic, like, crayon drawing on the front. You know, this is a different look to it. It's much more somber, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Subdued? The subdued? color tones, too, hey? Yeah. Yeah. The other ones are way more psyched out. Yeah, that's true. Do you want some dead wax? Absolutely. All right, here we go. So when I when I see that there's dead wax, I don't read them. I read them I read them live on the show here. Okay. That's why I can't get these out of my mouth sometimes. But here we go. Got to get the reflection just right. Side A. Always August geography. 
Did you seem something lately? Question mark. Hmm. Side two. Think a note, match the rhyme. Hmm. Mastered. What is there a mastering stamp on there? Yeah, K disc. John Golden. Jeez, man. I need to know who mastered this. Was it Rich Ford or John Golden? (laughs) (laughs) Another mystery. Well, hang on though. You can master the tape and then master the vinyl. That's two different mastering. Right. So maybe that's the difference, yo. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. Cool little record. Every track is worthy. I'll throw my hat in, though, for Flatland, just because I was really digging the road vibes in uh, Lee's interview. That's where I would go, but all four would go on on this comp tape for me. Yeah, we can do Flatland. Right on. No fight? No fight, man. They're all good. All four songs are great. Yeah. Love Always August. I'm bummed we don't get to see him again, but I'm looking forward to Hotel X, because I love Tim Harding's bass playing, man. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a while. Yeah. When are we getting a 200? Next year? Next year, man. Early next 200, year. 200. Are we half done yet? We are over half done the podcast. I counted. Oh, yeah. Holy shnikey. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Does that count like, does that count all those, you know, the 900 series and all those things? I don't know. I can't even think that far ahead, man. That we're going to be in a home yeah. when we're doing those ones. Yeah. Oh, well. Hey, thanks to Lee for being on the show. Totally. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, it's time to get sharp. I'm talking E-sharp. It's SST-194, the Elliott Sharp Carbon Record Larynx. Yeah, you know I love Elliott Sharp, man. And we've got a special guest. Charles K. Noyes is on the show. Nice. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.